0: Hello, Harvest Community Church. How are you guys doing today? Yeah. So it's Valentine's Day weekend, right? I'm excited that you're here, and boy, do we have an awesome text for you lovebirds, right? Like, listen, it involves some strange interfamily love. It involves John the Baptist getting his head lopped off. And and I now as I was looking at this text I thought man some people are going to be like why in the world would Pastor Scott and Harvest Community Church pick this text for Valentine's Day weekend the love weekend right Well first off Pastor Scott didn't pick this text we at Harvest preach through books of the Bible And if you can remember back, we started in the book of Mark. Pastor Mike kicked that off in September, and we've been moving forward ever since. And we took a little hiatus off in January so that Pastor Mike could deliver a very timely gift of a sermon series to the church. I hope you were as blessed by it as I was. But we just work our way through books of the Bible. So this is where we find ourselves today. And secondly, as I thought more about it, this actually is the perfect text for Valentine's Day weekend. Because the story of Valentine's Day focuses on a man of God who honored marriage, right? And and he was killed for it, actually. It doesn't seem too strange. That might happen in our day, right? February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, is the legacy of, of a priest named Valentinus, who defied the orders of a Roman emperor named Claudius II. And, and this, here was the orders. The Roman soldiers were not allowed to marry because the thing that he didn't want was for them to lose their strength and courage during battle. Now, now Valentinus had compassion on these soldiers, and he would perform marriage In secret for these men okay with women right and in time he was caught for his treasonous disobedience and because of that he was beat with clubs and he actually had his head chopped off and he died february 14th in the year 269 so this is the perfect text for this weekend in my opinion like because it points to a man who continued to follow christ no matter the cost Right? And, and no doubt, it requires much grace and courage to continually proclaim the truth of God's word in the face of, of that kind of adversity. Right? Men who preach the gospel do it, hopefully with a humble heart, but they do it with a courageous spirit, knowing that not everyone's going to like the message that they're bringing. And, and Valentinus and actually John the Baptist were both martyred because they loved Christ more than they loved their life. And so it's the perfect text. And so with that as our introduction, um, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out now. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 32. And in this section of Mark, by the way, it actually introduces many colorful characters uh, to us. But we're going to focus primarily on John the Baptist, right? And you're going to see his courage in the midst of adversity. And we're going to focus on King Herod, who actually, he's a coward. Right? And and we haven't heard about John the Baptist actually since chapter one of Mark. And so if you've been wondering what happened to this man after he went to prison, wonder no more. Look with me in Mark six, fourteen through thirty-two. It says King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the old prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his, bro- his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, saying I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took the body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while.'" For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. That is our text. Now this flashback to John's beheading looks like it belongs on some jacked up version of Jerry Springer episode, right? Titled like, When Birthday Parties Go Wrong. Because that's exactly what this looks like. But but the thing I want you to focus on is like, Truth has amazing power over like the conscience, the conscience of the mind, right? Herod feared that John the Baptist, he feared him while he was alive. You actually see that in verse 20, right? But now he's actually paranoid and he's tortured in his conscience, even though John the Baptist has been executed. And you see that in verse 16, But in order for us to understand the complexities of this particular text, it's important for us to understand something. It's important for us to understand who these colorful characters are, right, in this story. The challenge is, though, that King Herod, like, he comes from a a very strange, twisted family tree, okay? And so I'm going to attempt to untangle it. You try to keep up. First, you have Herod the Great. Now, he's not called great because he was awesome. He was awesome at evil, right? Because if you remember, this is the man who reigned while Jesus was born, okay? And he ruled from 37 BC all the way to 4 BC. And, And this is the one who ordered the slaughter of all the innocent children two years and under that were boys in an order to snuff out Jesus Christ. And when he died, his kingdom was divided into four different territories. And Herod the Great, He had 10 wives, and he had many sons who were actually half-brothers, okay? So, so far, keeping up, right? One of those sons, his name was Herod Antipas, okay? That's the one we find in Mark chapter 6 today who's called King Herod. However, this man's not really a king. He's actually what's called a tetrarch or a ruler. He only rules one quarter of the four divisions of that kingdom, Well, then he also had a half-brother, and his name was Herod Philip II. Now, now here's the thing. This is the ruler that was mentioned in Luke's gospel. But that's not the Philip that we actually have today, right? The one we find in our text today is Herod Philip I. and, And he's in verse 17, right? That Herod Philip actually married a woman named Herodias, okay? Terrible name, right? Herodias was the daughter of Aristobulus, Keeping up. Aristobulus is another one of these brothers, okay? Now, if you're picking up what's being laid down, you've picked up some interesting things. And if you're confused, join the rest of the club. But I'm going to say it one more time quickly, and I think you're going to hear exactly what's happening. So get this. Herod the Great and all of these brothers. Herod Antipas, Herod Philip I, Herod Philip II, and Aristobulus, okay? Who had a daughter, and her name was Herodias. But here's the thing. Herod Philip actually married Herodias, his niece. Weird, right? But it gets weirder because Herod Antipas, he actually really likes his niece that's married to his brother. Well, he divorces his wife, and then guess what he does? He marries his niece also. So that's disgusting. I mean, that's disgusting, right? But but it's important that you actually understand all the complexities of that because This twisted marriage is the exact thing that that John the Baptist is preaching against. the, The marriage between Herod, Antipas, and Herodias, John is boldly rebuking. He's doing it in public, but no doubt he's doing it in private conversations because it was against God's law for one brother to take another brother's wife who was still alive. All right? And it's safe to assume that John the Baptist wasn't going up all nice and cute and like watering down the gospel. No, this man was boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word. And, and what's crazy is this type of preaching would, would normally like cause everyone to run away. But Herod actually heard him gladly even though he was perplexed. That's not the case for Herodias. Herodias was infuriated that John the Baptist would ever speak against her in this fashion. This type of preaching, by the way, infuriates many people, even to this day. Right? When when have you ever been in a church service and the preacher, he's not being offensive except for the word of God, which is offending you? And my question is: when that happens, what do you do? What do you do when that type of thing happens? How do you respond to the preaching of God's word? when it highlights our sin. Well, Herodias, she responds in anger. She stiffens her neck, she hardens her heart, and she absolutely grows in hatred for John the Baptist. But if we could be real, she doesn't really hate John the Baptist. What she hates is she hates God, and she hates his truth, and she hates his word. And and she wants John put to death. Her desire to kill John, by the way, would have to wait, because her husband he was afraid to put John to death. He knew that this was a righteous and holy man by the way he lived. And so when he would hear him preach, Herod actually would hear him gladly and he didn't want to have him killed because he knew there was something special about this man. But he knew, man, happy wife, happy life. Like I need to do something here because my wife is not pleased. And so he's like, I got a brilliant idea. I'll throw him in prison. That way it'll shut him up. My wife doesn't have to hear him. And I think my wife will be pleased with that. Well, the problem was Herodias wasn't pleased with that. That wasn't enough for her. She's still not happy because she's stewing. And she's waiting for the right moment to see her desire become a reality. Well, that opportunity would present itself very quickly during Herod's birthday party, right? Now, this was no doubt quite the birthday party, right? Because like, if you look at the guest list, this is the who's who, right? You have, first off, you have government officials, you have military leaders, and, and then you have the high-class men of Galilee. And at some point during the party, probably when the wine is flowing and everyone's having a really good time, something strange happens. The daughter of Herodias starts to dance for everyone. Now, it could be a ballet dance, I suppose, maybe the waltz. But my guess is it's a little more scandalous than that. But I'm going to let you draw that conclusion. But here's what really makes it strange. She's doing this scandalous dance for her stepdad and for her guest and his guest, right? Now, this must have been some dance, right? Because of the way Herod respond. In verse 22, it says, it pleased him so much, and his guests so much. Here's what he says. He says, ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, that's a good dance, right? Whatever you ask of me, he goes on further. Whatever you ask of me, oh, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. Now, obviously, he's not being serious here. He doesn't even have the authority to give away half his kingdom, but what he's saying is, honey, whatever you want, you just ask. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that for you. And so she's got to be like, this is pretty awesome, right? And so she runs back to mommy dearest. And and what might she say? I don't know, something from Jared, maybe a beamer. um, I don't know, a yacht. I mean, he is a king. Maybe her own little territory. Maybe she gets to be the princess. But, But mom says, you know what? Tell him we want the head of John the Baptist. That's an odd request, mom. But immediately, the girl goes, and and she comes in, and she says to King Herod, I want the head of John the Baptist, and she adds this phrase on a platter. (laughs) Wow is right, right? Because like you might actually think like this girl, she's like a little sweetie pie. No, she's like, oh, yeah, we'll get that head, and I'll get it on a silver platter for you, Mom, because I love you. Well, you can see that the apple didn't fall far from the tree there. And my guess is if the wine was flowing, whatever buzz Herod had is gone. He sobered up pretty quickly upon that request. And, and Herod realizes in that moment that he is in a house that is divided against itself. And listen once again to how he responds to this strange request. Look at verse 26 again. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. That's our text for the day. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Like, what do we do with that text, right? Okay, we have some low-hanging fruit, right? Number one, I'm going to tell you, I think this, write this down. It's not in your notes as, as the map, but don't steal your brother's wife. I think that's a good takeaway, or, or your sister, or anyone's wife. We could just like all-inclusive that, right? Here's another one, free. Don't marry your relatives. I know some of you are like a little bummed out because, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Like, don't marry your relatives. Good takeaway, Another one would be, don't have your stepdaughter or anyone's daughter do any kind of scandalous dance for you or any other friends. Yeah, I think you could have got that, right? But in all seriousness, like, what do we do with this text? Well, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to talk about costly courage. And and I want to seek to answer two questions. And the first question is this. What is costly courage? Like, what is that? And this is truly your first fill-in-the-blank. Costly courage... Is the willingness to say and do the right things, regardless of earthly cost, because Jesus is your treasure? Man, this is where it hits truth for the Christian, right? The one whom Jesus Jesus called the greatest man ever born, John the Baptist. He said he's the greatest man ever born of woman. John the Baptist, he understood that to his core because God had given him a message of repentance and he proclaimed it without fear to everyone. The only one John the Baptist feared that I can tell from scripture is God Almighty, right? Like he went everywhere proclaiming a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins and this kind of preaching, it cost John his life. And yet, This man did not compromise because Jesus was his treasure. Jesus was the one that he fixed his eyes upon. And so he wouldn't compromise. And like the courageous prophets before him, John understood that the road before him would require some serious courage. Right? This kind of courage may not cost you and I our lives. However, we must understand that true discipleship is one of a downward road. It's downward. It's one of self-denial. It's one of self-sacrifice. Like to follow Jesus will cost you. It's gonna cost you. And if you think that's, that's not my experience, then, then I've got some concerns for you. Because I've heard this approach of following Jesus that, that many people have bought as a lie. And, and it kind of goes like this. I've heard many people say this statement throughout the years. And I was like, get ready to pick on it. Know that I understand the sentiment behind it but it goes like this, it's kind of pertaining to salvation. They say, listen, they're talking to an unbelieving friend maybe, and they were to say, like, listen, if I'm wrong about Jesus and about salvation, then I have lost nothing, right? Like I just become worm food. But, oh, unbelieving friend, if you're wrong, oh, and I'm right about Jesus and salvation, then you, my friend, you've actually lost everything. You ever heard that? Maybe you said that. Um, Here's the thing. I, don't, I get the sentiment behind it, but that type of thinking is a joke. It's just a joke because there's a real cost to following Jesus Christ. If Christ is not telling the truth, John wasted his life, and I'm wasting mine. And if you're following Christ, you're wasting yours. It isn't just like, I just become worm food. Like the Apostle Paul could not been more clear. He said that if we only have Christ to hope for in this life and in this life alone, then we are most to be pitied because we've wasted our lives, right? This cost John his head. It costs the Apostles their lives. And if it's not true, well, it isn't like no big deal. No, it's a big deal. So my question is, have you counted the cost of following Christ? That's my question, right? And if you wonder like whether or not you've counted the cost, I have some questions for you. They're self-diagnostic questions for you to ask and to think about. Number one, are you willing to follow Jesus even if it meant losing the closest friends you have or even losing family? Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to follow Jesus even if that means losing your job? Right, like Maybe something scandalous is happening at work. People are embezzling money. You know about it. You know that King Jesus is not pleased about it. And somehow you've just remained silent about this thing. And your conscience is bearing witness. Are you willing to step out in faith and trust him with your career? Maybe you lose it. Maybe you do. But are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means loss of reputation? Right? Are you willing to get your Jesus freak on, even though people might think you're weird? You're weird. Embrace it, right? Like, seriously, are you willing to do that? And, and ultimately, you have to ask this question, am I willing to follow Jesus even if it costs me my life? Every Christian has to ask that question. And if not, then it reveals a treasure problem. Seriously. Like, if you're saying, I'll follow Jesus but only if this doesn't happen. Whatever that is that you're afraid to lose, that's the thing that you admire. That's the thing that you worship. You've elevated a gift above the giver. And my friends, that is a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be because here's the thing, you would forfeit everything if you did that, which is why the second fill in the blank says this, you must decide whether you're going to be the one Picking up your cross or pounding in the nails? Let me me unpack that a little bit. See, like Herod and Herodias, they chose to pound the nails in when they would not repent of their sin of adultery, They said, no, what we want is what we want and it doesn't matter what God wants and therefore, they kept adding the nails to Jesus' hand. Like, neither of them were willing to give up each other. Therefore, they seared their conscience when they stiffened their neck, when they hardened their heart and they have lost their souls forevermore. Now, 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 listen, let us take warning here. Seriously, like, may you and I only cling to the cross. May we not cling to anyone or anything more than we cling to King Jesus. May we cling to the cross because that's what the call of Christ requires of us. Jesus is going to ramp this thing up as he goes on through Mark. And and As a matter of fact, we're going to look ahead just a little bit right now. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. See, Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples. And listen to what he says to them. You know this text. I'm just afraid it doesn't shock you anymore. That's my concern. He says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, if you're going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. See, following Jesus requires courage. The cross is an instrument of death. Therefore, take up your cross and follow me means being willing to die in order to follow Jesus wherever he would go. It's a call to total surrender. John heard the call, John obeyed the call, John finished the race that was set before him because John said Jesus is worth it. Have you? And you might, you might be thinking, like, what a wasted life John the Baptist had. Like, this dude was living in the wilderness. You know, he's eating, like, locusts. he got honey dripping off his chin, and he's coming out yelling at everybody, right? And then, like, he's obeying God perfectly. He's doing all these things wonderfully. And how does God repay him? He puts him in jail and gets him killed. But that's just not what we think of when we think of, like, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I got news for you. I hate that gospel because it's not good news at all. It's like anti-gospel, it's bad news, because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's going to cost you, but in the end, you get everything because you get Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. right? Like, and so, if you think, man, he wasted his life, you would be so wrong, because even though this call is tough, as a matter of fact, can we just be honest, it's impossible apart from the grace of God, the reward is not even worth being compared. Look at verse 35 again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You're going to lose it, right? If, if you try to hang on to the things of this world, you lose everything. This life right now would be the best life you ever had. No matter how bad or good it is. But for whoever loses his life, for my sake in the Gospels, well, you save it. You gain in the end, you lose nothing because you gain Christ. You have to come to grips with this. You have to. There's no half in, no half out. Go all in with King Jesus because that's the only way to enjoy the life that he has for you. The second question is, though, like if we're doing this, if we're going to do this, where do we get this kind of courage from and how do we do it, right? Like that's the question I have. Well, well first thing i got to tell you is remember that, that courage Or even, you could say faith, because I think the two are really a little bit interchangeable in this sense, is not something that you and I do for God, but it's something He does in us and through us and for us as we look to Him. See, courage can look like John the Baptist, who's publicly declaring the sinfulness of Herod and Herodias and, and Herod taking his brother's wife, right? It can look like that, that bold proclamation, going to a friend, preaching from the pulpit, the things of God's word, even if it goes against the culture, that is courage, right? I think you guys all would probably think of courage in that manner. But you know, courage can look a different way too. It can look like King Jesus, as he's sitting and standing before this King Herod, eventually, we'll get to that in Mark, and he gives no answer. None. He closes his mouth and he entrusts himself to God the Father and the plan that he has for him, which is to go to the cross. That takes courage. Sometimes it takes courage to, to speak out. Sometimes it takes courage to just close your mouth. And, and, and we got to trust the Lord to have him help us in that moment. But when Jesus was in that moment, and they were dressing him in a robe, and they were beating him, he didn't flinch He did not flinch. He continued to trust the Lord as the torture began and continued because Jesus understood something that you and I need to understand. We need to understand that humiliation comes before exaltation. Or as it used to be say, no cross, no crown. And that's true for us. If it's true for Jesus, it's definitely true for us. Like why would we think that Jesus somehow gets a crown of thorns, but you and I are going to get like some daisy, you you know, crown right like a, a I don't know, crown of roses that's dumb but you get my point why would we expect that i think too many people expect that and we'd be wrong to do it but the question remains the question remains do we live as though we believe this right it's easy to desire the let's say the benefits of christianity Like music and movies. Just kidding. Um, I'll probably get an email for that. Um, But that's okay. That's okay because there's good Christian music and there's good secular music and God is a lover of all good music and movies. But I'm talking about like eternal life. Eternal life. Like you'd have to be an idiot to say, no, I don't want to go like where there's mansions and streets of gold and like cherubs sitting on a cloud strumming all the day long whistling Dixie. I'd like that. Right? Like, you'd have to be an idiot to not want to do that. Or, how about the, the love of God in the way that many people think of it, which means I get to do whatever I want, and no matter what, he's like a Care Bear, and he just gives me a big hug and a high five and tells me I'm awesome. Right? Like, that's a good benefit. How about community? I find a place where I can actually fit in. How about kids' ministry? I can actually drop my kids off, and I actually have an hour and a half of sanity right? Like, that's awesome. And it's like Disneyland back there. They give them gifts, and they tell them all these awesome things, and then they send them back to me. Like, those are good things. Those are good things. I'm with you. But here's the thing. Like, when we think of that, is that the extent of our Christian walk? If it is, I got to tell you, I would be very concerned if I were sitting in that seat and thinking that this is what it costs me. Because even unbelievers could love those things. No, to follow Jesus, it's going it's to cost you. But only those who die with Christ can actually live with him. You've you got to get this. See, the gospel, man, it's, it's so beautiful. Like Jesus lives the perfect life because you and I, we can't live that perfect life. And he goes to the cross and he dies the death that you and I deserve to die. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're in him. Which means when I put my faith in Jesus, when Jesus was executed some 2,000 years ago, guess who was executed with him? Me and you, if you trust in him. And when he was resurrected to new life, guess who was in him and with him in his resurrection? You and I. Which means, which means we're dead. We're dead. Christ now lives in us. That's the powerful news of the gospel. And here's the beauty. So we can gladly pick up our cross because we know where this thing ends. We can trust him. You're going to lose things you love in this world, but you've not lost anything if you would completely just understand that Jesus is everything. So you can pick it up and you can follow him. So you want to know how to have this kind of courage? The first step Right? The first step is understanding the gospel. It's understanding that you are forgiven and that you're righteous. You want to have courage? Understand that, the, that the, the king of the universe sees you as covered by the blood of Christ because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, takes away the sin of the world and you are in Christ. You're covered. You're forgiven. But not only that, you have a righteousness. This is why in Proverbs 28.1, it says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues. Right? But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Let's take that first section. The wicked flee when no one pursues. That's exactly what happened with wicked Herod. His guilty conscience was eating him alive, right? Because John's righteous living and his message continued to confront his sin. And he couldn't stand it to the point he wrongly believed that, Je- like John the Baptist, he had come back from the grave to torture him. No one's pursuing this man. No one's pursuing King Herod. And he's fleeing because he's guilty and he knows it. This man was a coward. You might think, no, he was like bold and courageous. He had someone put to death. You can do absolutely crazy, stunning things. But at the end of the day, this man was a coward. He probably didn't sleep well at night, right? Like he was afraid of what his friends thought. What a small man. I've been there though. Oh man, have I been there. I've been afraid of what people think many times throughout my life. It's a snare. It's a trap. Thank you, Christ, for rescuing me continually from that snare, from that trap. But he was so afraid, he jumped in the trap. I can't disappoint my guest. Yes, little girl, whatever you want. He was afraid of his wife. You know, the one, the one person that he should have been afraid of and wasn't is God Almighty. And He'll stand before him one day. And he'll have to give an account. And guess what? He has no chance. And neither do you or I. Right? We have no chance except for Jesus Christ died for sinners, which I am. Right? And we've put our trust in him. This is why Shakespeare said that cowards die a thousand deaths before they die. It's true. So true. Right? This is why he was fleeing when no one was pursuing. Here is the thing, though cowards can't flee from forever, then they certainly can't flee from the wrath of God. Revelation 21.8 says this, But as for the cowardly, as for the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, Yeah! I don't know what text you're reading because as I read that I'm cowardly man I'm faithless many times I'm faithless detestable oh murders I'm a serial killer in my heart right like sexually immoral yep check it sorcerer idolater liar (laughs) yeah like that is me apart from Christ that's me that's the core of me so that message like here's the thing That's not me now because that man's dead. And that's why everyone who's not trusting in Christ will go to the lake of fire. You will die a second death. You'll die physically and you'll die eternally. You'll want to die and you won't be able to die. But the good news is Jesus came to die for sinners. I'm so thankful for that because you and I are much more like Herod or Herodias than we are like John the Baptist. And if you're like, that's offensive. Well, it's true. See, the problem is you and I are all cowards and all liars, but only those who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation are forgiven all their sins. And not only are you forgiven all your sins, but you're actually provided a righteousness. And that's what we need. We need to be righteous, but we're not righteous. And you and I can't do enough good deeds to be good enough. We need a righteousness that's foreign. To us. And so Christ comes and he gives us his perfect righteousness. So you and I can stand before the throne of grace and we can be unashamed in our declaration to draw near to that throne because we are covered in the blood of Christ. We are righteous and we are Christ's very own righteousness. This is why, Christian, you don't need to fear. The cross should create in us a very courageous living. Right? Because the lion of Judah, he's for you. This is why we can be bold as lions. Right? Like, have you ever watched lions on the National Geographic show? They're not a very timid animal. I love lions, I think they're awesome. Right? Like, but they're not like walking up to the gazelle and being like, you know, hey guys, like, how are you doing? yeah, do you have anyone who's like about to go out to pasture, you know, like die Um, because I'm hungry, but I've been waiting. I mean, I really like you guys. No, they just like, they jump in the middle of a bunch of wildebeests and they pick which one they want. They pounce on that thing and they get them. Like, listen, the righteous ought to be bold like that. No, like don't go attack wildebeest, you know, because they'll kill you. But like, They're bold because they have no fear of any other animal. Can I tell you something? The thing we ought to fear is the wrath of God, but can I tell you the wrath of God is gone for all believers? It's gone. It's gone. So like, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid that like Susie won't like me. Who cares? This is so silly. I'm like, I'm afraid like if I share the gospel, like someone's not going to reject me. Okay, they're not rejecting you and get over it, right? Like, Like we don't need to be afraid. Do you realize the God of the universe has delight upon you? He looks at you and he's so pleased. And it's not because you're awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome and you're in Christ. This is why we can be bold. But can I tell you something? Bold does not mean cocky. This is why the second thing we need to do if we're going to be courageous is to pursue humility. See, courage doesn't mean cocky. Instead, it creates humility in us. See, John the Baptist understood this, and this is why he said, after me comes one, a man who is mightier than I. He's talking about King Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I am un, not even worthy to stoop down and untie. In John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Now John the Baptist's ministry was taking off in this moment, and his disciples were looking around, and he's like, no, you see that man? That's the word of God made flesh. That's, the, that's the, the, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. That man, he needs to increase. I need to decrease. What a posture of humility, and it's true in our lives too. When Jesus increases in our lives, humility increases. We decrease. We decrease. It's not an automatic thing, though, because none of you in here, including myself, are, we're not humble. We're not humble. Every one of us are a prideful creature. We must daily submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God and remind ourselves that you and I, my friends, we're not God. And that's good news, because we make horrible gods. This is why a humble man or a woman will have lives marked by repentance, Lord, I was a coward today. Once again, I wanted to share the gospel with a a friend of mine, and I blew it. God, forgive me. Give me courage. Help me, embolden me. Help me to love my friend's soul more than I love their opinion of me, right? Like, we need to be a humble people. We need Christ to help us with that. You know, Jesus measured up in our place. This is why we can humbly follow him. And worshiping Jesus leads to humility. See, worship causes us to look up to Christ, and, and, and it puts us in our proper place, right? Like, like, pride causes us to look at our belly button, whereas humility causes us to look to Jesus. Nobody with a big head is going to actually be able to fit through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom. Nobody. And so, God, help us to be a humble people the third thing is trusting God's promise to be with you. We need God and he's with us. This is how we can live courageous lives. Look at Joshua 1.9. He says, have I not commanded you? Now he's talking to Joshua, yes, but I think this is absolutely applicable for us. And the, as us, I mean believers. And the reason is, is because in 2 Corinthians, it talks about all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And if you're in Christ, that's true for you. So here's what he commands be strong, be courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There's not a place that you're going to go on this earth, or if you like get a ride out of this place, that God's not with you. He's with you because he's, he's in you, which is amazing. You're the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is indwelt in all believers, right? Now, God He's never going to call you to do anything apart from his presence and from his power. So where you go? You go with him. And you need to meditate on that. So many times I find myself just focusing on on my power, what I can do. And I'm weak. I'm weak. But when I'm weak, man, that's when goodness comes. The mistake I make is sometimes I think I got this thing. I don't got nothing. But Christ, he's got me. And he's with me and he's for me. And so I can trust him as I go forward. I can be strong. Why? Because Jesus was strong in my place. I can be courageous. Why? Because Jesus is courageous. His spirit is now at work in me. I don't need to be frightened because there is no more wrath for me. What can man do to me? Seriously, dismayed? No, I have the word of God to keep my head on straight and God is with me. And because he's with me, I can go to him in prayer which is what we need to do if we want to live a life that stands out among the world. If we want to be courageous and compassionate in this world, we must be a praying people, going to God in prayer. Psalm 138.3 says, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. What a good God. Praying is how God gives us strength and courage. It's just how he does it, right? Because like, if we don't go to God in prayer, then we might think that somehow you and I are the ones that are strong. But he supplies us real power because God is our heavenly father. And he loves his children, and he loves his glory. He loves to be glorified in and through his children. So when we go to him, realizing that you and I, man, we are we're limited in our strength and in our courage. If we could be really honest, you and I are weak, and we're cowards. And when we go to him and we ask him to do this thing, and he does this thing, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. This is why he, he gives us this gift of prayer. So many times I find myself not doing that. I'm just trying to do it in my own strength. God, help me. And I've been praying this to be more dependent upon you in my life in prayer. Help me to be courageous in my living. Help me not to be afraid of man's opinion or anyone else's opinion. May I have a mindset of audience of one. And may the first thing I think about is going to you in prayer and trusting that you'll provide. And he does. Why? Because we have Jesus as our mediator. He's maintaining this this relationship between sinful man and holy and righteous God. And and Jesus stands in the gap. And and because of that, we can draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. And we can ask him for anything. And even if it's a good thing in our mind, he may not provide it for you because he knows best. He knows best. Do you trust him to do that? Because when you don't, what you're saying is, I would make a better God. Could you just get out of the way and let me do my thing? God, help us. He's indwelled in us. Help us to be a bold people. And how he does that is by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the last point. We have no chance to be courageous apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But the beauty is, those who are in Christ, we have this gift of a helper. He's not left us abandoned. He's not left us as orphans. He's given us himself man when i think about that that's amazing he's given us the spirit to help us to grow in love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control oh lord increase in us that look at acts 431 it says and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of god with boldness with boldness. See, see, many times in our lives, we are afraid to bring the life-giving message of the gospel to the people in our lives. And when I think about it, why, why is that? It's because we bought a bunch of lies. Well, they're not going to believe it. Maybe. Maybe. But, but here's the thing. Boldness doesn't mean like yelling, you're going to hell. No, it's like boldness means coming to them in a moment. And pleading with them as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Pleading with them. Like, listen, I know you love your sin. Prior to Christ saving me, I loved my sin. But I want you to know something. Jesus Christ loves sinners. And he loves you. And you think this thing's going to lead you to life and vitality and joy. But it's not going to. It's going to end up like drinking out of the toilet once again. Because it's a broken cistern. It can't handle the weight of the water that you want it to. But I got good news for you. God is living water. Come and drink from that fountain. Because that fountain is the one that can satisfy your soul. Like, we got to go to people like this. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So many times we're silent. And the reason is, is because fear is often the greatest enemy of a faithful witness. Because it makes us silent. We fear. What, if, what would they think? What would they say? What if they're going to talk about me? What if they say, you know, like, oh, st- just take your Jesus stuff and go home? They might. They might. <laughs> Heck, I've had that happen many times in my life. But when God is your treasure, it's okay. It's okay because at the end of the day, my heart, at the core of who I am, God help me, let it be. I just want to stand before Him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I can be courageous, even though I'm trembling, because I have a God who's for me, who's in me, and and who's doing this work when I trust him. See, here's the thing. We must be willing to share the gospel. We must be willing to share the bad news that God is not pleased with your sin. And then unashamedly share the good news that Jesus has made a way for sinners to draw near to this perfect God almighty. Remember, the gospel comes by a proclamation, We must speak the words of this good news, right? And it's costly to do that. It cost John the Baptist his life. This is why the gospel is to be cherished. And that's why it requires courage to share it. I want to finish with a quote. Charles Spurgeon once said, I think there is scarcely a Christian man or woman that has been able to go all the way to heaven and yet quietly hide himself and run from bush." To bush, creeping into glory. Christianity and cowardice? What a contradiction in terms. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.